Well, let's consider tonight part one. As I, uh, as I was preparing for this evening, which I started a couple weeks ago, off and on just you know, trying to set some time aside, I realized there's no way I can do uh, this topic justice in, in uh, 50 minutes or so that we have. So I'm considering it part one. You may consider it the final part. That's a, that, that will be determined next month. So um, hopefully I can whet your appetite and uh, you'll want to come back. And as uh, we already mentioned, the, the, the uh, questions. I would say just, I'm used to classroom setting, I would say just throw your hand up or blurt it out, but we're in an awfully big room here and, I, and this is being recorded, so we'll have to do it uh, in written form. Anyways, let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, <clears throat> thank you so much for uh, living truth. I thank you so much for the leadership here at this church. Uh, I thank you so much for the care and the desire to teach your word, to be true to your word. Um, Lord, the discernment that goes along with it, uh, the, the striving for wisdom. Uh, Lord, I thank you for that also. And so tonight, Lord, would you use these few precious moments to uh, instill a, a greater desire, a, maybe a renewed uh, commitment to dig deeper into your word and to draw closer to you. And uh, may you speak through me and may I just sort of step out of the way and allow you to touch hearts and minds. We thank you for that. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. So this morning I came to church. Um, Pastor Michael started going to to different texts. And I thought, has he seen my notes? I was going to go to Deuteronomy 31. I was going to go to Joshua chapter 1. I thought, well, I need, I need to come up with some, uh, some other text, which isn't that difficult to do, given uh, the, rich, the richness of our, of our scriptures. So, anyways, and then I was thinking, boy, I'm, I'm, I'm new to a lot of folks, and uh, new up here. And a lot of times when you go hear somebody speak or teach or what have you, they like to open the, the, uh, the teaching with maybe a a story or a joke or something like that. It kind of breaks the ice. It, it relaxes the audience, relaxes the speaker. So I added, I added a few slides that we're going to see that hopefully you'll uh, get some enjoyment out of. But uh, our topic for tonight is sola scriptura. And like my wife said, what is that? And is anybody else going to know? Well, sola scriptura simply means the scriptures, and it's a Latin terminology, the scriptures alone, sola scriptura, the scriptures alone. And so this morning we had on, on our slide, Pastor uh, John was up here, and I think it read, is the Bible enough? I think that's what it said, is the Bible enough? Something like that. Well, I'm going to read from, from uh, Psalm chapter 119, and just a, just a few verses, but keep your eyes and ears open for certain words like testimonies, precepts, statutes, commandments, rules, ways, law. All of those refer specifically to God's word. So beginning uh, in chapter one of verse of uh, chapter 119, but which is happens to be the longest chapter in the scriptures. Uh, we're going to read, oh, about 10, 11 or so verses. The writer says, blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies. So already what we have right there, walk in the law and keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. We have, we have uh, statutes, we have precepts. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. How? Can a young man keep his way pure? 
And you, here you could substitute young man, young woman, person, etc. How can a person keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So let me ask you, is the Bible alone enough? Of course it is. Yes, it is. And we have donuts out here. And we have... Oh, my time's not up yet, right? Yes, of course it is. And when we're speaking about uh, what we'll speak about tonight, which is that which is sufficient for living the Christian life, um, the scriptures are alone sufficient. So as I mentioned, Andy, my uh, clicker's not on. No, that's the... Uh, there's that. There's the men's retreat. Now, there's a group that needs some reformation right there. Wouldn't you agree? We are going to be talking about the reformation tonight. You can't talk about sola scriptura without talking about the reformation. And that's part of the reason why we, we uh, picked this topic. Um, just talking over the last few months, discussing the fact that, you know, this year, uh, 2017, happens to be the 500th year anniversary of the reformation. And so along with that, out of the Reformation, what came out of that is uh, some different concepts that, not, that I'll touch on in a moment. So Pastor Michael this morning was introduced to a friend of his. He used to play slow pitch softball together. He was complaining about getting old, didn't think he was up to the task. However, at the retreat, Pastor Michael <laughs> was playing wiffle ball. Now, if you'll notice, that is... That is the stance of a slow pitch hitter. He's standing there, the bat is relaxed, he's waiting for the ball to come down. Right? It wasn't a good pitch. That would not have landed in the strike zone. The strike zone's a little bit different. So he wasn't swinging at that. But I'll, I'll, I'll mention this. Him and I had a chance to play catch together, and it reminded me of uh, the movie Field of Dreams at the end there with Kevin Costner and his dad. And so, since I'm just a little bit older than Pastor, Pastor Michael, I, it made me feel dad-like to play catch with Pastor Michael. This guy's a ball player. He, great arm, great glove. He's got a great swing. I, did, I, I coached for about 18 years. So here's that swing. And if you don't know anything about baseball, if you notice his arms are extended and his head is down towards the barrel of the bat where he would make contact with the ball. So he's got a very good swing. His hips are turning. His back foot is turning. Uh, there's just one slight problem. <laughs> The ball. The ball is right there. So, you know, I'll give him this though. You know, a softball's a little bit bigger than that wiffle ball. So, he has a good, he has a good golf swing. I know that. I've, oh, I've heard that. I haven't played with him. So anyways, that, that was, I, I'm not a good storyteller or have a, an abundance of jokes like some people who just have all kinds of funny things to say. So I, I picked these slides out that Pastor John sent to all of us. I thought you guys would get a kick out of that. I wasn't sure if you'd be here though. So I'm, I'm, glad, that, I'm glad that Pastor Michael was here. So as I said, the 500th year anniversary of the Reformation. <clears throat> so tonight is gonna be a little bit of history. We're gonna talk a little bit of history. We're gonna talk about what that uh, sola scriptura actually means. And I want you to keep a couple things in mind. Um, when you say sola scriptura, think of this. Think of authority. Uh, think of sufficiency. Okay? Authority and sufficiency. Because that's really what it's rooted in. Um, it being the, the king centenary, we're going to have to uh, talk a little bit about the Catholic Church. We're going to have to talk, uh, obviously, about Martin Luther, and we're going to talk, have to talk about what it is that he, what he did on October 31st of uh, 1517, and, um, and then in our next session, we'll, we'll attack the scriptures, we'll look at the arguments, 
um, will provide a rejoinder. Um, so we're really setting it all up tonight. Now, why study church history? Well, for one thing, we're inheritors. We are all inheritors of the past. And so it's, a, it's good to study church history. And if you think about it, we're only going back 500 years. That's only one-fourth of church history. So we, we are, we're inheriting 2,000 years of church history. Our, the early church, you know, we're indebted. We're indebted to the past, and we're indebted to the early church fathers for a lot of things, including our, um, the way they hammered out uh, our thoughts and how we think about what it means for Christ to be uh, fully God and fully man. Um, we're indebted to them for our ideas about the Trinity. We're indebted to them for uh, the creeds. We're indebted to them for the initial sort of missionary thrust and push in the first and early second century, and the, which really um, grew the church and, and spread the gospel. So it's good to look at church history. I didn't, I didn't study it in school. I wish I had. I really enjoy it when I get a chance to, to do some reading in it. Um, so I, I'm not going to consider myself a historian, just an interested sort of bystander. And hopefully I can, that, some of that can rub off on you this evening. So along with sola scriptura, a lot of people think that that term in itself was uh, sort of the impetus by itself for what Martin Luther did. Although Martin Luther didn't use that, that specific term. In fact, the, the, the five, there are five solas, um, probably weren't fully put together until around uh, this past century, until the 1900s. And the, the five of them are sola, Fide, if you're writing any of this down. I'll be throwing a lot of information, so if you like learning and you want to write down, you can, you can write. Sola fide, which means uh, faith alone. Our salvation is by faith alone because of grace alone. Sola gratia, G-R-A-T-I-A. Sola gratia. So you have sola fide, sola gratia, sola scriptura. Then you have solus Christus, which is by Christ alone. Solus Christus, by Christ alone. And then soli Deo, um, soli Deo to God be the glory, Gloria. Soli Deo Gloria. All for God's glory. So we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And it's all rooted in the scriptures alone. So those are the, the five that people identify with uh, the Reformation. Now, what exactly do we mean? Let's break this down a little bit further. What do we mean by sola scriptura? scriptura? First of all, sola scriptura is recognized as sort of the formal or first cause of the Reformation. When it's all boiled down, it comes down to authority. Is it scripture alone, or is it scripture and? Scripture and church tradition, scripture and papal, or the Pope's authority, scripture and the teaching magisterium of the Catholic Church, or is it scripture alone? So this is sort of the formal, uh, formal cause, or principal cause of the Reformation. Now, because of that, and because of our position, and if you didn't know it already, our position is only scripture. We have, we're in an irreconcilable impasse, it seems. It's irreconcilable. If we're going to hold to what we hold to, then we can't hold to any other authority over or equal to or above the scriptures. So what we mean by it is that the scriptures are supreme in authority in a Christian's life. The scriptures are supreme in authority in a Christian's life. We mean that all truth necessary for not only our justification, 
which is our salvation, but also for our sanctification, which is how we conduct our lives, that's our growth, is found in and taught by the scriptures. Explicitly, and where not explicitly, implicitly. So, let me say that again. Sola Scriptura means that all truth that's necessary, okay, a simple way to say it, all truth necessary for faith and practice. Faith and practice is found in the scriptures. The way I had it written out, all truth necessary, not only for our salvation, which is justification, but also for our growth or sanctification is found in and taught by the scriptures explicitly. And where not explicitly, implicitly. And the reason I make that distinction because the reformers also recognized a principle called the perpiscuity of scriptures. And all that means is they are clear. The scriptures are clear. Anybody could read the scriptures and understand what it is necessary to be saved. Anybody can read the scriptures and understand what it means to give God glory in how we conduct our lives. So the scriptures are clear. They're explicit. So the scriptures are our highest standard for truth. They are our highest standard for truth. They reveal to us infallibly the things we need to believe in in order to be saved and all that we must do to glorify God. So the scriptures are our highest standard for truth. They reveal to us infallibly, that means without error, without mistake, the things that we need, you and I, to believe in order to be saved and all that we must do to glorify God. So they are authoritative and they are sufficient. They are all we need for faith and practice. Authoritative and sufficient. Now, you may be asking, what about this or what about that? So, the, so sola scriptura, here's what it doesn't mean. Okay? It does not mean that only the Bible has truth in it. In fact, most of the truth, like if you told me what you had for breakfast and said that's true, right? Most of the truths that we know and accept and believe about the world are not in the scriptures. That's why I said faith and practice. They're sufficient and authoritative for faith and practice. But it doesn't mean there's not other truth. So don't make that mistake. There, of course there's other truth. Sola Scriptura also, in, in tandem with this, doesn't mean that we reject general revelation. Okay? If the scriptures are special revelation, then what we see in the cosmos is general revelation. The truth about God is revealed in the heavens above also. In fact, all truth is God's truth. Ask any Christian who happens to be a biologist or a physicist or a chemist or an engineer and just the way the world operates. Anything true about the world points to the God of the Bible. So sola scriptura does not negate the truth of general revelation, God's creation. Did I lose that? You guys can still hear me. I must have small ears or something. <laughs> or someone has large ears. Sola scriptura also is not a denial of Christ who is the Word of God, the living Word of God. Sola Scriptura is not a rejection of church authority, okay? There is church authority. There's church authority in this church. God, through scriptures, has 
commanded, right, authority. We have pastors and teachers and elders. So sure, there's a, there's a, a lot of authority um, dispensed through the church. Nor is Sola Scriptura a rejection um, of the role of our teachers, our preachers, our pastors, our prophets, etc. That those people are gifted, right? We learn about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Those people are gifted for those purposes. Now, what it also does not mean, just because you hold to Sola Scriptura doesn't mean that your personal uh, beliefs, your personal doctrines, your personal practices are inerrant themselves because you yourself may not be adhering correctly to the word of God. That seems sort of uh, common sense or self-evident. Um, just because the word of God is infallible and inerrant doesn't mean that our interpretation or application always is also. Now, I said that uh, Sola Scriptura was one of the uh, founding uh, or the formal principle or uh, formal cause of the Reformation. There was a second idea that, that if you boiled it all down, there was, there's a second idea uh, that parallels that that came out of the Reformation. And uh, because... Some of these ideas happen to be a little bit later in Martin Luther's life and some of the other reformers. We won't cover them here, but it, it is the other idea that runs parallel besides where's our authority is what does it take for a man to be right with God? And I've already touched on that when I said sola fide and sola gratia. But what does it take for a man to be right with God? And the reason why that was so important is because of what was being taught in the uh, church at that time. So if the formal cause is sola scriptura, what is the material cause? Well, we should all know by now. Martin Luther was the material cause, the instigator, so to speak. Now, there were other reformers and there were plenty of them that even came before Martin Luther. Um, all throughout church history there were people trying to reform it or bring it back to um, uh, or more in line with the scriptures. It just so happened that it was at this point in history that God used uh, this quirky man um, to bring about his purposes. So I want to show you a couple maps just to give you an idea of where we're talking about. There, this is a map, obviously, of Europe. Germany's about smack dab in the middle. Um, let me go back real quick. So Germany is right here. And so here's a map of modern-day Germany with some towns. Now, I got this particular one. This being the 500-year anniversary, there's maps that show you can take tours. You can go with, like, tour groups and stuff and visit the different locations and things and kind of reenact some of the things that happened um, all those years ago. So this map happens to be pretty good because I'm going to talk about a few things. Martin Luther, uh, well, he was... Born in, uh, he was born in Eisleben, right here, in uh, 1483. Uh, he died in 1546. The only two people in history uh, who've had more text written about them is the Apostle Paul and our Lord Jesus Christ. So Martin Luther has had more books written about him than, than anybody else besides those two. He went to school in Erfurt. You see it right there, right near where he was born? Right here. His dad wanted him to be a lawyer. 
extremely bright kid. Uh, his dad wanted to be a lawyer. He graduated with a Master of Arts in Logic, Grammar, Rhetoric, and Metaphysics, which is philosophy, in uh, 1501. In 1505, he was caught in a thunderstorm. This is an interesting story. He's caught in a thunderstorm. He's scared. Lightning strikes near his horse. I think he's thrown off the horse. He's scared for his life. And uh, he cries out to St. Anne. I don't know why St. Anne or what patron saint she was. Now remember, Martin Luther is a, uh, not yet, but he's going to be, but he is Catholic. Okay, he was raised in a Catholic home. So he cries out to St. Anne and says, spare me, get me out of this situation, get me out of this storm, and I will devote my life to the Lord, and I will become a monk or a priest. And sure enough, he, uh, he keeps his word, much to the chagrin of his father, who wanted him to be a lawyer. And uh, he, he uh, enrolls in a monastery, He's ordained, and then he enrolls again at the University of Wittenberg. The University of Wittenberg, he received his doctorate and became a professor of theology in 1510. Now, we've heard of the 95 Thesis. This is, this is what everybody talks about when they think of Martin Luther and him nailing. He took the 95 Thesis and nails it to the Wittenberg Castle Church door. October 31st, 1517. Here's sort of a rendition of it. He nails these, it's called the 95 Theses. They were 95 academic statements. Okay, they were statements that he is proposing to have a debate on, an oral debate. Now, the, the church door um, because this is the main church in the town square, the church door would be like our current day of Facebook. You want to put something out there. You want to get the community to see what you want to uh, debate or dispute. And you, you put it up in the public right there on the church door. This happens to be a picture of the actual portal, which is the same portal. The doors aren't. The doors in this picture are brass, the current day doors, and the church itself has been rebuilt, but the, uh, the archway there is the original archway of the Wittenberg church. You can see the little red spot where that's where the doors are. That's the rebuilt uh, castle church in Wittenberg, Germany, and there's a close-up of the brass doors. Those brass doors have all 95 statements written on them. So these, these 95 theses are more, of, more uh, officially called a disputation. And a disputation was a call to a formal debate in the pursuit of truth. And it was usually had to do with theology or science. And in this case, they're called disputation on the power and efficacy of indulgences. And so we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about what indulgences are. I apologize about this. Hopefully you're not getting annoyed. I tried that. Well, I try not to move my head too much. Um, so here's what happens. Martin Luther is uh, upset. He's distraught. He's a little confused. He's a little angry about this thing called indulgences. And he sends this letter to the Archbishop of Mainz, which was, a, was about 300 miles away. And in addition to that letter, he posts the 95 Theses, this disputation on the church door. He's looking for oral debate. He's not necessarily... Um, he hasn't made his mind up yet. Remember, he's Catholic, and at this point, he's actually a Augustinian monk. He's an ordained priest. He actually conducts the mass. He actually uh, dispenses communion. So he's a fully functioning priest, 
and he also teaches theology at the university. So he's looking for uh, clarification. He wants to dispute these items, and uh, he's not necessarily looking to do what we, looking back 500 years, see happened. Here is the opening uh, statement that was above the 95 Theses. Out of love for the truth and from desire to elucidate it, the Reverend Father Martin Luther, Master of Arts and Sacred Theology, and ordinary lecturer therein at Wittenberg, intends to defend the following statements and to dispute on them in that place. Therefore, he asks that those who cannot be present and dispute with him orally shall do so in their absence by letter. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. So he's looking to dispute. And here's a nice little meme, speaking of Facebook. I don't always nail things at church doors, but when I do, things start to happen. Boy, that, that is the truth. Things did start to happen. Uh, within these 95 theses, there were challenges to papal authority. There were challenges to the idea of purgatory. There were challenges, uh, what it means to uh, serve a penance. Um, obviously, the indulgences, uh, the certificates of grace, which the indulgences were. And uh, we're going to talk about that. So, so what happens from this point forward? The wheels start to turn. This uh, archbishop of Mainz sends his letter off to the, to the pope. And so, you know, they get their counselors together and deciding what to do. And ultimately what happens is uh, he gets called before a tribunal. And that we're going to talk about that. That's, the, that's called the Diet of Worms. But So here's what happens. Um, this guy right here, John Tetzel, he was a, he was a, not an Augustinian, but a Dominican friar. He was given permission to sell indulgences. I'm going to explain to you what indulgences are in a second, but he couldn't sell them in the region where Martin Luther was, where Wittenberg was. Now during this time, this was during this time, this was called, it wasn't Germany, it was the Holy Roman Empire. The Holy Roman Empire had lots and lots of mini estates. Um, we would think of them as counties. We would think of them as provinces or territories. So there's all these different territories, and all these territories have their different little rulers and stuff. Now, there were seven key rulers. They were called electors. An elector was someone who could elect the emperor. So only seven people were able to elect the emperor. And these provinces had, uh, a, you know, a little more, pulled a little more weight. Well, Wittenberg was in a province. Um, uh, Frederick III was the head of this province. And the Archbishop of Mainz, who was a different province. And here's, here's what the situation was. This man, John Tetzel, was given permission and was working in conjunction with this archbishop to sell indulgences in order to raise money for the, to pay for the building of St. Peter's Square in Rome. It's still there today. One of the most magnificent man-made structures on earth. Well, it was very expensive. Catholic Church needed money. This was a, a, uh, easy way to raise money. <clears throat> and here's what happens. I, I'm going to have to, <clears throat> I was raised Catholic. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I'm going to explain a little bit of Catholic uh, theology to you. In Catholicism, um, they have seven sacraments. We recognize two, two sacraments or two ordinances. We call them baptism and communion. Okay. Catholic church recognizes seven uh, one of them is called the sacrament of penance. 
or confession. If you've heard of confession or have you ever seen a movie, if you weren't raised Catholic, but you know what's going on, there's a priest who sits in this little room and someone comes in, closes the door behind him and they sit and they face each other with, through a screen and the one person confesses their sins. That's the sacrament of penance. Now, with penance, you are given absolution. Absolution is when your sins are declared forgiven by the priest. But in order to get absolution, you need to do something. We call that penance. It's a, like a payment. Okay? So absolution is the removal of guilt. Penance is the payment or the act that the person does to be declared by the priest absolved. Absolved of your sin. Now, in order to gain the penance, it, your, the actions could be anything the, the, the priest comes up with. Now, when I was a kid, I went to parochial school, Catholic school, and I remember there were certain days, I, I don't know if it was every Friday or when it was, but we, if we were old enough, if we were able to take the sacrament of penance, the class would go and uh, we would go through and take our turns, you know, c confessing. And talk about a time of uh, getting in trouble, you know, standing in line with all your buddies. <laughs> that, that, wasn't, that wasn't a, <clears throat> a time to, to uh, remain quiet. Anyways, because we would say, oh, what do you have to do? You know, what do you have to do to have your sins forgiven? And so, you know, you would be told to, you had to pray maybe five Hail Marys or five Our Fathers and then when you get home, you're supposed to help your mother put the laundry away or whatever. So you were given these tasks to do. And that would absolve you of your, of your sins. Well, the indul here's what was happening with the indulgences. The, the other thing is purgatory. Does everybody know what purgatory is? Purgatory is the place where people go. It isn't heaven and it isn't hell. But it's there for people to work off those sins they haven't been fully absolved of. So if you haven't been absolved of sins when you die, you go to purgatory, you do penance in purgatory. You actually do penance there. One of the penances that you do is suffering. You suffer. That's part of your penance. And given enough time, you're finally absolved. You leave purgatory and you uh, live eternally in heaven. So indulgences were like little receipts, like pieces of paper that you were given. So this man, John Tetzel, was going around the countryside selling indulgences. Now, you could buy them. You could buy them either for your own sins, okay, or you could buy them for a deceased loved one's sins who happened to be in purgatory. And then based on the authority that the Pope had, had delegated, your loved one who was in purgatory could be released from purgatory by you buying these indulgences. So you could speed up their time in purgatory and get them out of purgatory if you spent enough money. Well, this not only didn't sit well with Martin Luther, it obviously didn't sell, sit well with lots and lots of people, um, peasants. And because Tetzel couldn't sell indulgences in the province where Martin Luther was in Wittenberg, people from Martin Luther's province would cross over and go and give their money and to, to get their loved ones out of purgatory and buy their indulgences in another province. So this was the reason for the 95 Theses. This was the motivating factor because Martin Luther saw what was happening and he knew that it was exploitive to say the least. My clicker is not clicking. There we go. Oh, a bunch of them went. Okay, so... Mr. Tetzel was the Dominican friar. This gentleman is Albert of Brandenburg. He is the Archbishop of Mainz. He was doing the same thing. This man was in, was in debt. 
He was in debt and trying to raise money. So he was keeping the money people were spending to get their loved ones out of purgatory and only sending a fraction off to Rome. So you had those two characters. So if you want a material cause, Martin Luther being the material cause of the Reformation, it was basically because of these two gentlemen and the practice of selling indulgences that why we are here today and why we are considered Protestants. So I explained all that. And this was the saying that people would say or Mr. Tetzel would say as he would go around. As soon as the coin in the coffer rings as they would drop their money in, the soul from purgatory heavenward would spring. Or, I mean, just atrocious. I mean... Terrible to play on people like that. This, oh, yeah, they, they raised an awful lot of money. The, uh, the next slide happens to be one of the 95 theses. I want to show you one of them. Um, this one is, hits hard, really hard on the papacy, on the Pope. This was number 82. It reads... The lady asks, for example, and this is what one of the theses were like. Um, this is what, you know, an item to dispute. The lady asks, for example, why does not the Pope liberate everyone from purgatory for the sake of love, which would be a most holy thing, and because of this, the supreme necessity of their souls? Why isn't the Pope, if he has the ability to forgive sins, to absolve sin, to spring people out of purgatory. Why isn't he doing it out of love for his flock? This would be morally the best of reasons. Meanwhile, he redeems innumerable souls for money, a most perishable thing with which to build St. Peter's Church, a very minor purpose. That's quite a question. And I'm sure the, uh, the Pope had steam coming out of his ears. Here's another meme here. Our uh, hipster, Johann Tetzel, was charging money for salvation before Scientology was cool. <laughs> he was charging money for salvation. That's true. Just I'm going to... Um, I don't, we don't need these slides... We're at the time of the service where if you have questions, could you raise your hand and we'll start to uh, collect them. But I wanted to get to the diet of worms. The diet, and the first, when I was younger and I heard this term, I thought, why would they eat worms? It had nothing to do with that. The diet of worms, a diet was like a council. It was like this formality where you bring the, uh, uh, the authorities together and they discuss something. Worms or Verms was the location. And if you see on our map right here, on the left side, there's Worms. You guys see it right there? So Martin Luther got called to Worms. Um, he had been sent a letter by the Pope uh, telling him to recant. He burned the letter publicly in Wittenberg. He got summoned to Worms. And if you remember, he's still a a Augustinian monk at the time, so he's still under authority of the church, so to speak. His friends are telling him not to go. You are going to be martyred, basically. He goes anyways, and <clears throat> at the Diet of Worms is his famous Here I Stand speech. Here is a painting of it. Uh, actually, a painting from the, the 16th century. There's Martin Luther standing in the back in front of the emperor. Um, and he's answering for himself. Now, what they did is they presented him all of his writings. And see, one of the, one of the things that really allowed for the success of the, the Reformation was the uh, printing press. And... When Martin Luther, in, in, uh, when he, in 1517, when he first posted his theses, 
Within weeks, the countryside of Germany had been plastered with copies. And so the uh, printing press was extremely important to the success of the uh, Reformation. So here they present Luther. They show him all of his works, all of his writings. And they ask him to uh, recant, to refute what he wrote. And now uh, he was very troubled over this. And asked, he asked for, uh, for a one day's reprieve that he could pray on it that night. So he prayed on it, and when he came before the council again the next day, it was his famous speech, the Here I Stand speech. And he says, unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. And with that, he got out of there with his life, although he was excommunicated within months. His writings were banned. He was taken in back uh, by Frederick the Wise or Frederick III, the one who started the Wittenberg School. And he was put up in the Wartburg Castle where he was hidden away. And within 11 weeks, he translated from the Greek the New Testament in 11 weeks. And the, the language throughout, uh, well, the Holy Roman Empire was not a clean Germanic language. It was all different dialects and stuff. And so he really solidified the German language in his, in his translations. And uh, so it was Martin Luther. And he, I mean, he did that in 11 weeks. That's just, that's just amazing. And then uh, after that, he lived a pretty fulfilled life. He ended up getting married. Um, he had several children. Um, he he uh, dialogued and wrote and debated. And uh, he became almost like a, a national hero. But so what we're going to do next week or next month is we're going to go into the scriptures and we're going to look at the arguments used uh, by both sides. And we're, we're obviously going to uh, resoundly defeat the idea that papal authority, church tradition, magisterium of the church are on equal par with God's holy scriptures. Um, there are some simple arguments from scripture and there are some simple philosophical arguments uh, that make it pretty clear that we stand firmly on the word of God as our sole only authority for all faith and practice. Um, before I, I haven't even read the questions, but before I do that, let me close in prayer and then I'll look at the, the questions. I don't know if I'll be able to answer them, but we'll see. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. Lord, I thank you for, we thank you for the Reformation, Lord. You, your church constantly needs to be, be brought back into line with your word because we as human beings are constantly looking to stray. Your church is constantly under attack. However, you have promised that the gates of hell, hell would not prevail, that your church would remain. We are your bride. All believers throughout all time are part of that bridal party. And we thank you for that, Lord. We thank you for your word, your enduring, eternal, everlasting word, your infallible holy scriptures. Lord, may you stir in our hearts a renewed and refreshed desire to acquaint ourselves with your teachings, to find comfort and sustenance in reading your word. Um, Lord, may we be a people of the book of your word. 
We thank you for that. Lord, bless these souls here tonight. May we travel home safely. And Lord, um, I just ask that you continue to bless living truth. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Do the Catholic sacraments come from the Apocrypha? Uninspired scriptures, not in the canon. Um, uh, the only one I know of would be an attempt out of Maccabees to defend purgatory. They don't, they don't come from either. Um, the sacraments are baptism, uh, confirmation, confession, first communion, holy orders, which would, if you were to become a priest, you'd be holy orders, uh, matrimony, which is marriage, and uh, last rites. So somebody who, that's seven. Um, those are the seven. They don't, it's, it's not that they're defended scripturally either in, uh, in the 66 books of the Bible, nor in the apocryphal writings, which are not in our Bible. It's just that they've attributed them, or they just call them sacraments, as if they are uh, some means of God meriting favor. See, in, in, in Catholic teaching, you're not justified by faith. Um, in a way you are, but the grace that you receive can be given out in different measures, and we, we cooperate or we work with it. And by participating in the sacraments, those are means of being given grace. Um, so, yeah, they're, they're, it's, not that they, it's not that they're founded on Scripture nor apocryphal writings. It's just that, that that's what they call them because of church tradition. Is there any prophecy in the scriptures about the Reformation? I do not believe so. Are there any that we could uh, look at and, and sort of impose it on the Reformation? I don't know. Um, Pastor Michael, do you know of any prophecies regarding that would be speaking about the Reformation? Germain, yes. Right. Certainly applies. Certainly applicable, and and which shows the need that we need to ever be sort of reforming. I mean, our, ourselves aren't we always doing that, or shouldn't we always be doing that? Don't we find ourselves in stale periods, and then we're like, we need, want to redouble our efforts. We want to sort of reform ourselves individually. Lord, help me. Um, you know, the week got away from me. Oh my gosh, I haven't, I didn't even open the Bible for the last nine days. You know, we're, we're always thinking that way. Those are, that's just like an individual, uh, reforming. These are good questions. Were there other priests that were also questioning? Absolutely. I don't know how many. There were other priests Martin Luther had several allies. Melanchthon was one. Um, he, uh, this, the, the, the spread of the 95 Theses, the dispute, disputation happened so fast and it made so much sense that before Luther was even died, you would consider the region of Germany as a Lutheran country. I mean, that's how fast this happened. Um, so he, many, many allies for sure. Um, he was not all alone. And then, you know, the Reformation spread to other parts. When you think of Zwingli and Calvin, etc. I have heard that Martin Luther has said some very bad things about Jews. Do you have any knowledge about this? Yes, he, he Martin Luther was a, was a uh, irascible, unpleasant, abrasive, crude. I mean, this, the stuff they said to each other, you don't, you know, you would be taken off of uh, 
you know, the air, if, if you were a commentator and you were debating the way these people spoke to each other and sort of the names they called each other and stuff, he was anti-Semitic, um, but he softened, he softened his position as he got older. But yes, um, unfortunately, he was. I, I, I can't give you a quote offhand. I don't know if anybody here can. You can look it up, though, if you just look it up online. Um, I would just type in Martin Luther, anti-Semitic. So yeah, unfortunately. Any other questions? You can just blurt them out. Um, yes, sir. Um, wasn't that part of their problem? or their, Oh, for sure. Oh, absolutely. There was always that tension. You know, there were, there were times where there, were more, there was more than one pope. There was one time where there were three popes competing. Um, so talk about, you know, papal succession. Come on now. Supposedly it's a, a pure line from Peter, right? Pastor Michael even uh, referenced the, the Matthew chapter 16, I believe. Upon you, upon this rock. You know, supposedly um, there's a line of popes that go directly back to Peter. But then you see all this stuff that happened uh, politically, yes. There was always that blend, right, between um, supposedly the politics and church and not, you know, not combining the two. So I, for sure. Right. Um, is there a parallel track that you would bring up? Similar arguments from Greek Orthodox folks who are saying church tradition and authority is still largely invested outside the scripture. There, there is a, a very good, yes, there are tremendous parallels. And it will be uh, next month where it will be much easier to, next month will be like the arguments, how we argue for sola scriptura versus scripture and tradition, things like that. So the, yes, the philosophical arguments are the same and even uh, scriptural ones. And there, there has been a, a movement from evangelicalism, and this has been going on for thir maybe 30 years now. There's been a sort of this trickle of individuals from uh, scholars to laity going supposedly back to Rome or to Eastern Orthodoxy. And um, I think some of the fault lies within American evangelicalism and our, uh, I think we haven't paid enough attention. We haven't given enough attention to church history. We, um, we have sort of downplayed the aesthetics involved. You know, a lot of people get, are drawn to the ornate, to the beauty, the architecture, the, the uh, traditions, the bells and whistles, so to speak. Um, you know, I've, I've been to a Catholic church maybe three times in the last, I don't know, 25 years. And the, you know, I, sure, I reminisce. I, I could never go back to Catholicism because I completely disagree with the mass. I completely disagree with the just, justification. That their, it's just their theology is not there. Why would you reenact the crucifixion of Christ when he said it is finished every single day in every Catholic church across the world? That's what the mass is. It's a reenactment. It's a reenactment of the crucifixion. Hey, Joe. Yes. Back here again. Sorry. Um, I, when I grew up in Roman Catholicism as a, an Italian Catholic, um, I was taught that I could pray my grandfather out of purgatory. So one of the burdens I felt as a child is my grandfather had died, and I felt that it was my duty to pray for him every night to get him out of purgatory because I had a feeling he was there. 
for uh, the way he lived his life. And I felt guilty if I forgot to pray for him. And I felt that burden because I was taught that that's where he likely was. So I think, you know, there's a lot of emotion that goes with this too because right. you feel like, you know, I might have a loved one in purgatory and it's my duty to pray them out. And that put a lot of burden on me as an individual, as a kid, when really his salvation had nothing to do with me. So I, I think that's something that... that that's terrible, so. yeah. But, you, you know, that is, you're right. And you know, it's not, and you know what? The Catholic Church has made reforms, and, and there was even a, a counter-reformation that happened over about 15, 20 years uh, where they met at different times and stuff and, and as a response to the uh, Protestant Reformation. And, uh, and even since then, even since the uh, Trent, the uh, Trent II in, this, I think in 1966 or something, so there was, there was pressure put back there, and there, was, there, there were reforms. Um, so, yeah, I, I couldn't go back, but I see why it's attractive for some people. I do see why it's attractive. Um, the liturgy, you know, you, you, you read, um, you know, you stand up, you sit down, you kneel. Um, so yeah, there's, and I do, I, I think some of the, you know, the architecture is beautiful. You, you know, we've seen pictures of the churches and stuff. And so that there has been that movement, but, uh, but there are good, good arguments in our defense. Yes. I don't. So what? Deborah said that um, she thinks the the liturgy in in the uh, Eastern Orthodox Church was written yes. by James, the brother of Jesus. That that's what they state. That that's yeah. That the liturgy was actually written by the by James, the brother of Jesus, and so that is one of the church traditions that um, they go by. That makes them. Um, you know, more in line with right. God and Jesus, according to their writings. I was just curious, what, what was, do you know what was going on in the Orthodox Church at that same time with the Roman, you know, well, the, the, Roman was, the split was in 1054, so you had the East-West split, West being the Roman Catholicism, East being what we call today Orthodoxy. When did you say that the was? That was the East-West schism. Yeah, so a thousand years ago, basically. And one thing that does happen, Deborah, is that they claim that there's a direct link all the way back to the apostles to, on the Catholic side, Peter, perhaps on the Greek Orthodox side, James. Uh, I'm not sure what their source data is to say that they have a liturgy from James, because that would be an extremely early document. Um, so I haven't seen evidence for that. I, I would be interested to see evidence for that. Um, but that's, so that's the argument. And, and because of that, they say that there's a purity in what they do and how they worship. But I would just say to you that what we know of early church worship was actually that it was patterned more after um, the Jewish synagogue because the first Christians were what? Jewish. So the pattern of a, call it a modern Protestant church service is patterned, in my view, more after what I know of a synagogue service than it would be a liturgy. I'm not saying that there's not beauty to the liturgy, and I just want to go on record since I'm talking right now that I think there's a, a many wonderful born-again people in the Roman Catholic Church and in Greek Orthodoxy. But I would say despite some of the things that I, I would personally have some issues with, so I'm not, you know, we're not saying, and I think we all would agree that, you know, there's not saved people in those churches. I think they are. But I think sometimes their arguments about the purity of the worship and the line of authority is, is not on the most solid ground. Do you agree? I agree. I, and I agree that um, I know a lot of Catholics that I believe are saved, that love the Lord, 
um, just not an, it's a different emphasis. I, I don't think, I think a person can be saved in spite of Catholic doctrine, not because of, and there's a, there's, there's a benefit to the Catholic church not emphasizing studying scripture and stuff. The, the benefit is, is that people can unknowingly, therefore, then not hold to Catholic doctrine strictly either. Because most Catholics aren't familiar with um, Catholic, the, the catechism and what they really believe and teach. And so they can be saved in spite of that. Yes. Sorry. I can throw my voice, but uh, we'll use the mic. Um, one of the main things that it sounds like you're getting to in this is the whole thing of Martin Luther putting the Bible into or the scriptures into a word that the more commoners could be able to read. Because up to that point, the church had control and they could make the rules. And if absolutely. you can't read what the Bible says, you can't do no, anything abso- about it. No, absolutely. They fought tooth and nail on that. You know, they do, they do uh, sort of... At, in, a re- in response to evangelicalism, they do encourage that now. But back, you read some of these quotes about the dangers of reading scripture if you're not in the priesthood, you know, like how dangerous it was because you couldn't really understand it. And you, you know, you might be susceptible to, to believe anything. That's why the reformers held to perspicuity or clarity. They were like, no, 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 no. Anybody can read this in their own vernacular. We just need to give it to them in their own vernacular. In fact, the backstory on Martin Luther is that he got, really felt like he got saved reading the book of Romans. Yes, himself. Romans chapter 1, verse 17, and then chapter 3. The thing I have encountered with Roman Catholics is that their lack of doctrinal knowledge has made them extremely vulnerable to Jehovah's Witnesses. Absolutely, they really are. They are going... It's a great point. Of you go to Kingdom Hall, and about fifty percent of them are all ex-Catholic. Yeah, they are vulnerable to that. 